I'm Russ McQuaid, and this is Indie Justice. Karen Joe disappeared days after Christmas 2000. So did Stephen for two weeks. So did his car. No way on earth that, that Karen Joe Smith would have left those two kids there. I thought he was a decent guy. I'll be honest with you. We didn't have any kind of crime scene, Russ. I think we all knew that at some point we were going to we were going to be here. I knew that once he got her alone, he would kill her. He had promised. There's going to be two things that's going to happen. We're going to bring Steve Halcom to justice. We're going to find her daughter, Karen. The week between Christmas and New Year's Eve in 2000 was exceptionally cold throughout southern and central Indiana with overnight lows hovering below zero and an inch of ice coating the ground. It was on one of those nights that Karen Jo Smith disappeared and was murdered. Right away, investigators took note of the weather when Karen Jo went missing. I was on call that particular week and it was uh, late December uh, in, in 2000, which is one of the coldest Decembers that we had had. The investigator assigned to Karen Jo's case was IPD missing persons detective Judy Phillips. She was not in the house when the kids woke up. 13-year-old Brandon Smith was the last person to see his mother when he kissed her goodnight in the living room where she watched TV with her ex-con, ex-husband, Stephen Holcomb. Brandon told his mom to go to bed. Karen Joe had just told Stephen to get out. She never went to bed. And Lana called the next morning is when I woke up and was hollering for her. She never responded, and I searched through the house, and she was there. My mom's car was there, I think her purse, her coat. What was most struck me that very first day was the amount of people that were in the house. Uh, her family, her family alone was, was all throughout the house and I had never uh, experienced that. This struck out just the, to me, the amount of people that were in that house. There was, you know, it was immediately apparent that, that this was not a good situation. Brandon was the first person to notice his mother had disappeared, and within hours, the two-story house on Indianapolis's near southeast side was abuzz with relatives, panicked about what had become of Karen Joe. What did you find when you got to the house? Jack Lee was Karen Joe's uncle. So I just kind of looked around. My older brother, Russell, um, had come over there, and he had seen drag marks from the back door out to, towards the alley because there was snow on the ground. And he had told me about that. So I just kind of started looking around, trying to see if I could see anything that could give us an indication of what might be going down or what might have went down. I did find some rope underneath the bed upstairs in her bedroom, in the master bedroom, um, some type of a um, clothesline rope. I become concerned after finding that 
um, thinking the worst, you know, hoping for the best. And you were there when the police showed up? Yes, I was there uh, when Detective Phillips showed up. It was the next day, Friday, December 29th, when Judy Phillips was assigned to the case and she arrived on the scene. Detective Phillips asked a lot of questions, interviewed everybody at the house. Um, her and I walked, you know, I showed her where my brother showed me where the uh, drag marks were, which at the time they were gone because the snow had dis uh, disappeared. And so I was showing her what uh, my brother showed me. I told her about the ropes and we went down into the basement and looked, you know, and and kind of looked around there. What is the initial story that you're starting to understand? Right, that there would be no way on earth that, that Karen Jo Smith would have left those two kids there. How do you investigate a missing persons case? Yeah, you really have to delve into just about every part of that person's life to figure out what's the logical explanation, either A, for this person maybe still being alive, or B, for someone wanting to harm them. So you really have to look at that person's life and dig in and you know, speak to the family and friends and and coworkers or just, you know, whoever might have a piece to, to put that puzzle together as to where that person could be. You're literally looking for something that's not there. We didn't have any kind of crime scene, Russ. We didn't have a, a, a location of where, you know, she might have, uh, you know, run into to foul play. We just we just didn't know for a long time what uh, what what had happened to her. You know, we, we figured out eventually, pretty soon, pretty quickly, really that 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 she had uh, that Karen Joe had succumbed to foul play, probably because you know she had two kids, and and who's going to leave their their two kids who are 13 and eight? Um, so we we knew pretty pretty quickly that there was something that was you know. A miss. It's Friday morning, and the last time Brandon saw his mom was Wednesday night. Karen Joe's family had been all over her house during the days in between, looking for clues, but at the same time, unintentionally contaminating Detective Phillips's crime scene. And Karen Jo was one of those people apparently who never left dishes in her sink un unfinished uh, before she went to bed. And that was another thing that we had learned that particular day is there's, there were uh, 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 dishes that were in the sink. And, you know, that was another thing that the family, uh, you know, di didn't want those, those, uh, those dishes in the sink because that's not how Karen Jo would, would have wanted them. So, so you know, they picked up the, they picked up the house the dirty dishes left in the sink. More proof that Karen Joe's disappearance on a dark, cold night was unexpected. If she had left of her own volition, her coat would be gone, her wallet would be gone, um, her car would be gone. Um, she might have left a note for her children. Ellen Corcella is a former deputy prosecutor for the Marion County Grand Jury. The other key piece of evidence was that she was due to go to the Mary Riggs Center that morning. So she had an appointment that she didn't make. What was Mary Riggs Center? What was she going to do there? Uh, because she had told Stephen Halcombe that he, she wanted him out of the house, she was going there for foods. Mary Riggs is a local neighborhood uh, social services center. So she was going there to find a food stamp help, any supplemental income help she could do, make applications perhaps for for employment. So 
uh, knowing that he was going to be leaving the house, she needed to find a way to support her kids. And it hasn't gone unnoticed by the cops or the family. Someone else is missing too, Steve Holcomb. So I imagine from the very start, it took you guys about a half a heartbeat to look at each other and say, Stephen. Uh, yeah, we knew Steve was involved in her disappearance, okay? We strongly felt that. Uh, at the time, we didn't know what had happened. You know, we're, you know, we just knew he was involved. And we had to convince Judy Phillips, this guy's involved. You need to try to locate him, you know, locate his car. He was on parole, and yeah, he was not around. He was persona non grata. He was nowhere, nowhere to be found. New Year's Eve 2000 comes and goes, and still, no Karen Joe. It's 2001, and the family decides it can't wait for the police alone to find the missing mother of two. Boots were on the ground. We did not have a clue what to do, who to do, how to do it. All we knew was we had to start searching. Patty Carter Bishop was married to Karen Joe's father, Ed Bishop. Ed went to Indianapolis. We contacted Fox 59. By chance, Russ McQuaid. The media had already came in a little bit, but we knew we needed more media. This is how we reported the story on January 4th, 2001. This is Stephen Holcomb and Karen Smith in happier times before he went to prison on a cocaine charge. The last time anyone saw Smith, she was with Holcomb in this house on the night of December 27th after she kicked him out. Relatives say Smith feared her ex-husband. He had a tattoo on his arm and uh, it had RIP and a skull and it had seven lines, seven blank lines and he had stated to her that each of those lines represented a person that he was going to get even with. She always knew that she was number one on that list. No one has seen Steve Holcomb since Karen Joe has vanished, but Detective Judy Phillips says she had heard from him somewhere, presumably out on the road. He, I believe he did call me once or twice, uh, Maybe, maybe once didn't say you know where, where he was or uh, yeah or or had any indication of, of where Karen Joe was 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 his story. While Detective Phillips is searching for Holcomb, she's also digging into his history, his fatal DUI accident, his drug conviction, and his failed attempt in 1994 to hire a hitman to kill Karen Joe, and then almost immediately, his plan to hire a motorcycle gang kill the undercover cop he was dealing with. You know, why he was in jail pending case on my drug case, he's running his mouth and he puts a $20,000 contract on me thinking he'd get me killed, you know, so he could beat his dope case. Greg West was a narcotics detective with the Marion County Sheriff's Department. And then I get a call from Julie F Judy Phillips from IPD that Karen Joe was missing. She asked me, could he kill her? I said, I don't think so, but you don't know. At this point, Steve Holcomb had only been out of prison for less than six months after his drug conviction, meaning he was on parole and needed to report to his parole officer 
unless he wanted to go back behind bars. It was a matter of then either finding him or finding her, and it was about two weeks later when he did show up um, at his parole office at 1300 Meridian. He kind of tried to slide in the back door, and, and uh, we were able to talk to him then for the first time. At that point, Holcomb was arrested for a parole violation, and Phillips said he had nothing to say about Karen Joe's disappearance. But when it came to his car, sometimes when you don't say anything, you say a lot, as we reported in January of 2001. This is Holcomb's car. When he showed up Thursday, police searched the car. They didn't find anything. He had cleaned out his, uh, the trunk of his car, which was uh, not a new car by any means, but he had completely taken out the carpeting and just wiped it down completely. Uh, and so that was, that was telling. And he comes back with his car and he, uh, this is one of the interesting, I think, compelling pieces that may not have gotten out in the news as he comes back with his car. And again, Judy, contrary to most instincts, the car has nothing in it, nothing. She calls crime scene out anyway. And they document, which I notice in the reports, the car is so clean it seemed to be wiped clean. Now, it doesn't occur to me till we've been investigating this a while to say, oh, well, how does Steve Halcom usually keep his car, right? And so I asked, I brought all the witnesses back and said, how did he keep his car? And every witness to, to a T said he was a mess. His cigarettes would have been in there. His wrappers from fast food restaurants were in there. Everything was in there. Yet he never cleaned his car. But of course, now we have this car that she documents through crime scene uh, forensics that has been wiped clean and there's no carpet in it. When you start talking to him, what is he telling you or, or at the same time, is he just shutting it all down or do you get the sense he's trying to play you to figure out what you know? Uh, sure, a little bit of that. So um, jail calls were another uh, piece of uh, very important evidence at, at that point. So he was talking to his father, Stan, while he was in, in jail here in Marion County. And we were able to get some of those jail calls, yes. And, and he absolutely wanted to know, you know, what, what the police were doing, wanting to, wanting to, to know who, who I was talking to. And at the same time, telling his father over and over, they're not gonna find anything. Uh, they're, I'm, I'm telling you, dad, they're not gonna find anything. And uh, very confident that, that, that we weren't gonna find anything. While Steve Holcomb is in jail on a parole violation stonewalling, even though Judy Phillips is listening in, Karen Joe's family intensifies its own search. I interviewed her father, Ed Bishop, and the family in January of 2001. Uh, we have a will, and, and we're going to find Karen. Some way, somehow, and uh, we're going to continue doing what we're doing, and, and we're going to bring her home. You know, we just don't know. We just don't have a date, but we are going to bring her home. His car was seen within 48 hours after they come up. We realized they were missing. It was spotted down here by the graveyard. Uh, so we have put together this search to um, search this area. Uncle Jack's garage was our command center. That's Patty, Karen Joe's stepmother. We were in creeks. We were in golf courses. We were everywhere. So Uncle Jack Lee and Ed Bishop, Karen Joe's father, get to work looking for Karen Joe and helping police build a case 
Again, Steve Holcomb. Him and I started putting things together saying, what can we do? You know, what can we do to assist the investigation? So we just started putting our heads together saying, you know, okay, we need to get flyers out. So we had flyers spent up. I had passed flyers out to truck drivers to take into different parts of the, you know, of the, of the states, you know. I think there's flyers all we went all the way to California of the pictures of his car, trying to locate his car. Truckers taking flyers with Karen Joe's picture all the way to California was a long shot because Holcomb had never, well, almost never, left the state of Indiana. The farthest he's ever gone away that anyone had ever known about was Kentucky, once. We um, met with the detectives constantly, informed them, Karen's not going to become a file in your drawer. You know, uh, we know Steve Hawkins involved in this, and we need to find the evidence to prove that. And we just kept digging and digging. To find Karen Joe, her family needed to immerse itself into Steve Holcomb's life and his world. And we talked to prisoners that had been in prison with Steve, um, or we found them and then notified detectives, and they went and met with them to try to get information. Steve Holcomb's history in prison and predilection for bragging and threats and his conviction that he's smarter than everybody else, including Judy Phillips, was about to trip him up. Well, yeah, the combination of listening to uh, Steve Halcombe's jail calls with, with his father, combing over all the letters that he had written to her from, you know, from prison, one of which said, I'm going to put you on a milk carton one day. Um, and you know, piecing together the fact that she isn't anywhere. You know, we, we ran driver's licenses in every state to say maybe she did, you know, if there's any chance that, that she could, you know, be alive out there. While Holcomb serves his time in prison for the parole violation when he was on the run, Karen Joe's family takes its campaign literally to the street outside of Holcomb's parents' house in June of 2001. Smith's family thinks Holcomb's folks know something they're not telling. Is these people have not come out to check on their granddaughter. They've not called to say, hey, what kind of assistance can we lend in finding Karen Joe? What are they covering up, you know? Are they trying to help Steve? Today's protest was the act of a family desperate for word of a missing daughter and sister and mother and friend. They've courted the media. They've searched in the snow. They've picketed a father's house in a quiet neighborhood on a peaceful Saturday morning in a journey that has been nothing but dead ends. We want to find Karen Joe. We want to bring her home, and we're going to find justice. As long as Steve Holcomb's in jail, the family and Judy Phillips know where he's at, giving the detective time to work on her case. The other piece of, of that as well in terms of gathering evidence were of course his uh, his cell phone calls. Cell phone, uh, any, even DNA at that point in 2000 was, was still sort of in its infancy a little bit. And when we were able to track his cell phone to find out that, and that took a couple months to find out that he went all the way to California after her, uh, after she went missing. And, and when you're on parole, that, that there that's a huge risk that you take when you're on parole knowing that 
that you have to report your patrol, put parole officer and such. So that was a huge, uh, huge piece as well. Eventually, at the prison in Pendleton, there's a parole hearing to determine if Holcomb can be released from custody after serving time for his parole violation. Ed Bishop was there. He didn't want to come back in front of us. We had the room full. We had people standing up on the wall. And uh, he was very nervous when he was in the room. And, you know, basically, I mean, I know that the guy's guilty. He's just, he's the kind of person who thinks that he is uh, bigger than life, that he's bigger than the law, and that he's smarter than the law. Holcomb is released and moves back home with his parents. He's cut off all his long blonde hair, and Ed Bishop and Jack Lee decide they need a new photograph of him. So Ed and I became curious. We need to know what this guy looks like now, you know. So Ed had contacted me and said, hey, he said, I'm going over to Holcomb's. And he goes, I've got this camera with a zoom lens on it. He said, if Holcomb comes out of the house, we can get some pictures and see what he, you know, get some pictures of him. I said, okay, uh, Sandra and I had just got through eating breakfast, I think it was. I said, I'll meet you there. And at the time I had gotten there, Ed and Steve and Ed, uh, Steve's dad had a competition. And it was, you know, it, they, it was a fisticuff, you know, and they all went to jail. <laughs> so, um, we, but we got the picture. <laughs> it just so happened Ed Bishop called me that day and told me what he was going to do. After the brawl and he was let out of jail, Ed told me all about it and said he was squaring off with Holcomb's dad in the street when... And then with my back turned as this confrontation was going on, and we're still down with my truck, we're 100 plus yards from the house, then I felt a hit on my back. And, and I felt it the first time and I turned around and looked and it was Steve Holcomb. He come out, he was in his sock feet. And he swung again, it hit my back, come up and hit my ear. And, and as I was turned, we kind of fell to the ground. And I rolled over and I hit my head. Detective Judy Phillips. His weak spot was he couldn't keep his mouth shut, for sure. He, the fact that he kept talking to his father, and and I think it's it's human nature, right? When, you, when you've done something, you want to get it off your chest. You want to talk about it. And with regard to the jail calls, that was definitely what, uh, you know, what a big piece that he just, yeah, he, he just couldn't keep his mouth shut. And... Uh, thank goodness for us. By now, Phillips is working closely with grand jury deputy prosecutor Ellen Corcella. Well, this is where he was really quite clever. He knew he was being recorded. And I think I, now you brought this back, read a number of transcripts of these calls, and it was very oblique, the calls that were recorded and transcribed and monitored by Judy. The thing that was problematic for him, however, was Karen Jo Smith had kept a stack of letters that had been sent to her by Halcombe while he was in prison for six years. And she must have known something was going to happen because she gives those letters to her friend Tammy Gates and says, if anything ever happens to me, Tammy, turn those letters over to, uh, I mean, this is like, <laughs> turn those letters over to the detectives. It was when I read the letters is when his real motivations and his way he would do it becomes clear. His biggest thing, which is, um, 
he said the Supreme Court, he writes to her, the Supreme Court has said that, whether they said this or not, I don't know, but in 99% of the cases where there is no body, there is no case. And so um, eventually the fact that there was no body actually becomes compelling evidence that he did in fact murder her. It's almost like a modus operandi, right? If he were to kill her, the way he would kill her, he's announced, is a w way in which you would never find the body. One of the things I began to think about, I, you know, I have this fact that he leaves for two weeks. Um, there are some evidence of where he went. He goes, he leaves the state, he goes all the way to California and back. So that might not seem out of the ordinary for most people, perhaps. So how do we show that that was um, not just a pre-planned trip for vacation, which would be the obvious explanation you gave, but something, again, out of the ordinary, what Steve Halcombe would do. And as we drill down, we realize, one, to leave the state would be a parole violation, which means he's going to go back to jail. Two, he never left the state before. He's not a traveler. So for him to actually get up and leave and go outside, I think he's been to Kentucky before, but we again were able to say, no, this is a guy who does not travel out of the state. He stays close to home. He's been to Kentucky. So if he's compelled himself to go all the way to California and back, there's something, it's not because he decided all of a sudden he wanted to explore the United States. And how about that car he drove to California? Holcomb's blue Ford LTD, wiped clean of evidence when he comes back to town 12 days after Karen Joe disappears. By now, Ellen Corcella is presenting evidence before the Marion County Grand Jury in 2003, asking 12 citizens if they think there's enough evidence to charge Steve Halcombe with Karen Joe Smith's disappearance and murder. We take before them his disappearance for two weeks. Uh, we take before them um, pictures of the car. Uh, we fill in, I asked Judy, which I'm sure she uh, wasn't really happy with, but she was terrific, terrific detective. Um, to find an identical car to his, so he had a late model LTD, I wanted her to find one of those cars with actually the carpet in it so that I could show a grand jury and the jury what a car looked like if it actually had the carpet in it. And then we brought um, before the grand jury, the person who sold Steve Halcombe the car to say that when I sold him the car, the carpet was in it. So we paid a lot of attention to little tiny details um, so that no stone was unturned and didn't leave any opening. So both we front-ended and back-ended how that car existed before Judy finds it in that parking lot outside of parole. Remember how we said Steve Halcombe likes to talk, except when he doesn't? Karen Joe's family came up with Halcombe's cell phone records, and Ellen Corcella spotted a change in his phone calling pattern that she thought indicated his knowledge of the crime. And what we were able to do was to show that Steve Halcombe, uh, because he was obsessed with her, as many people who are in these sort of these abusive personalities, called her multiple, multiple, multiple times a day. But on the day she went missing, he never called her again. Again, that fact alone might not make the case, but when you put it with the other facts, it begins to build a very good case that the reason he never calls her again is he knows she's dead and not going to pick up the phone. It's the summer of 2003. Karen Joe's been missing for two and a half years. 
Steve Holcomb has been in and out of jail and prison, and by that summer, he's out again. Ellen Corcella has laid out her case for the grand jury. Holcomb's father was called in to testify, but Corcella said he was uncooperative, and now Steve can feel the cops closing in. On August 13, 2003, Marion County Prosecutor Carl Brizzy announced that the grand jury indicted Stephen Holcomb. We believe that he probably is on the run, and we are looking for him. The prosecutor's office has heard from Steve Halcombe within the past few days. Now he's nowhere to be found. After three years, Halcombe's being charged with murdering his ex-wife, Karen Jo Smith. This indictment details the state's evidence. A witness to the grand jury says Halcombe said he gave Karen Jo a one-way ride from Indianapolis. He told his father not to worry, there's no crime scene. He made a statement uh, to a witness that's known to the grand jury that he strangled her. It's an aggressive approach to prove a case solely on circumstantial evidence, which is what this is, but the law is clear that you can do that. I think we all knew that at some point we were gonna, we were gonna be here. We just didn't know when. Karen Joe's father, Ed, may have had faith that that day would come, but the murder case against Stephen Holcomb would still be a crapshoot. In the background, the elephant in the room is, oh, by the way, we're going forth on a murder case where we don't have a body, we don't have a crime scene, and we don't have a witness, and we don't have DNA, and we don't have hair, and we don't have fingerprints, and we don't have a murder weapon. Right, Because exactly. most people would look at that and go, we don't have a case. Carl Brizzy was the prosecutor. I'll say two things about that. One, he did give me the freedom to investigate it. I mean, I give him great credit for that. As long as I was doing my other things, the IMPD gave Judy a lot of leeway and some help um, to do it. But um, when we left the press conference where he announced the indictment, he turned to me and said, you have about a 20% chance of convicting him. Good luck. It was more than luck that Corcella, Phillips, and Karen Joe's family would need. They also needed Steve Holcomb. But again, he was gone. After they got the indictment of Steve, he had ran. He was in Denver. He was in Colorado, Denver, at a homeless shelter. Karen Joe's stepmother, Patty. I had already spoken to Beth Chapman from Dog and the Batty Hunter. They were going to look for him. We, you know, there was no reward. They were going to do it pro bono. They were going to find him. But fortunately, there was a trail enough to where... He was found at a Salvation Army in Denver, Colorado, and brought back. A homicide detective recently told me he rode all the way from Denver in the back seat of a car with Steve Holcomb in handcuffs, hoping he'd talk. When they neared Kansas City, Holcomb told the detective, how about we get a nice hotel room for the night? The detective said, we got a room for you all right, just as the car pulled up in front of the jail in Kansas City. In another day or so, Steve Holcomb was back in familiar surroundings, the Marion County Jail in downtown Indianapolis, and facing the charge of murder for killing his ex-wife. Ed Bishop told me the day of the indictment that he was ready to face Steve Holcomb in court. There's going to be two things that's going to happen. We're going to bring Steve Holcomb to justice. We're going to find her daughter, Karen. Pretty soon, it's 2005. Steve Holcomb's in custody. Karen Joe is still missing. And the Marion County prosecutor is about to try a murder case with no body, no weapon, no crime scene, 
and no witness. I put Brandon Smith, her son, on first. It was scary, real scary. He would jump up and say, First, we had to convince the detective Steve Hawkins was involved. Then we had to convince a prosecutor Steve Hawkins was involved. Now we're looking at convincing 12 jurors. They only needed one to say no. That was my greatest fear. Next, on Indie Justice. Proving murder without a body. We hope you'll be listening. I'm Russ McQuaid. Indie Justice is reported by Russ McQuaid and produced by Greg Margeson, Maureen Caruso, and Mallory Wheel. Maverick Atterbury is our editor. If you have information on this story to report, you can submit a tip to Crime Stoppers at 317-262-TIPS. If you have feedback or story suggestions, you can email us at IndieJusticePod at gmail.com or tweet us at IndieJusticePod. Check out Fox59.com slash IndieJustice for more content.